This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another of Deep State Radio's one-on-one conversations with experts. Today we're talking to Norman Ornstein, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, a Washington DC based think tank. Norm is one of the leading uh, uh, observers of the American political process. Um, And I thought, you know, with the election around the corner, it might be a good idea to uh, get his perspective and uh, insights. Um, And let me start with the most open-ended question I can imagine. what do you think is going to happen next Tuesday? Uh, you know, our, our elections in uh, recent times leave one a little humble about making flat predictions. Uh, but I would say this, uh, you know, the betting markets or the, uh, the odds makers like Nate Silver uh, say that there's an 80 percent chance of Democrats winning the House and an 80 percent chance of Republicans holding the Senate. I put the odds of the Democrats winning the House at uh, more like 90 percent. Uh, you always have to leave some uh, opportunity for, uh, you know, upsets. Um, and uh, probably the Senate's about that. Um, there's a difference here, obviously, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the uh, Senate is a an uphill climb for Democrats um, and a, a climb uh, even to uh, keep uh, the numbers where they are now. Uh, the, the Senate, of course, a third of the seats up uh, at any time um, and staggered terms. And this time it's 26 Democrats, nine Republicans, a whole lot of those Democrats in states that Trump won, more red states. And uh, with a tribal environment that we're in, where what normally happens in a midterm contest, the president's partisans are discouraged and don't turn up in large numbers, and the uh, party not of the president is angry and does, uh, the tribalism means that a lot of Republicans who are discouraged might still turn out so that they can keep these evil Democrats from winning a victory. And that, of course, is really behind Trump's strategy of trying to whip them up into a frenzy over the caravan and George Soros and uh, the now birthright citizenship and the like. And in some states and places like North Dakota, maybe Indiana, which is why the Democratic incumbent there, uh, Joe Donnelly, actually said some positive things about getting rid of birthright citizenship the other day. Uh, Maybe Missouri, um, not as likely in uh, West Virginia because of the strength of Joe Manchin. Um, and seats that Democrats are trying to take in places like Tennessee, uh, it's going to make it harder for them to make enough gains and hold their own seats. The House, the battlegrounds are different. They're not simply red states. They may be districts that have been strongly Republican, but often suburban districts or districts with a significant number of suburban uh, residents, including especially the one category among Republicans uh, who are growing more and more unhappy, and that's suburban women. And the health care issue, I think, which is a very, very significant issue, even in some of these Senate races, uh, like in Arizona, um, but particularly in many of the uh, key House battlegrounds, 
that's a, an advantage to Democrats. And what we also see is that there are significantly more contests, more seats that are in play this time, twice as many, according to David Wasserman of the Cook Political Report, as there were in the last midterm in 2014. And when I look at the seats that are widely considered to be toss-ups, if Democrats simply win half of them, which is what you'd get if there were no wave or no wind behind their backs, they'd still have a narrow House majority. Uh, so the uh, opportunity for them to do significantly better than a narrow majority is there. Um, the question I guess I have then is, you know, is that good news? <laughs> well, uh, let let me turn it around, uh, David. Um, if the Republicans held both houses of Congress, I believe that would be catastrophic news. Catastrophic in a couple of ways. One is I think the attitude of the party more generally, starting with the president uh, and his own team of people, but including Republicans in Congress and around the country would be, look, we can do anything we want and we still win. This is great. And the result would be, um, more of the same, which not only includes the kinds of policies like child separation and uh, anti-immigration, trade wars and the like, but it would also mean uh, probably more federal action to um, uh, suppress the votes of Democrats, minorities to start with, but also younger voters, students, uh, and even a growing group of older voters, um, and an attempt to use the process so that you could continue to win elections even if you didn't win majorities of votes. Uh, that, along with the reality that what we have seen so far uh, is zero effort at a check and balance in Congress, no hearings on the uh, corruption, with the president, his family, and so many of his cabinet members. No hearings on the lapses in governance from child separation to a disastrous performance for the hurricane in uh, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, a mediocre one at best in Florida, uh, cutting funding for the Centers for Disease uh, Control uh, at a time when we have spreading Ebola and other pandemics in Africa that required the uh, CDC to cut by 80% its funding to countries in Africa and Asia to help to combat these as if uh, we could uh, uh, build a wall around the country to keep uh, people from traveling in who might be carrying those things and less ability to identify and cope with them and on and on and on. And so I, I think we would have a very, very bad situation. Um, a Democratic House, even a Republican Senate, more Democrats winning governorships, some state legislatures, uh, perhaps some secretaries of states in the states, which are the ones who run elections, and you begin to get at least checks and balances, the opportunity and ability to get Trump's tax records to uh, protect the Mueller investigation, make sure that the reports at least come to Congress, to subpoena officials, to hold oversight hearings, and then even begin to promote an agenda that won't be enacted immediately, but that can begin to highlight you know, what you could do if you actually had the broader reins of power. So um, far from ideal, but a whole lot better than the alternatives. Yeah, no, no question about that. Though, you know, I, I you know, I get when I was a kid, my dad used to call me Eeyore um, because I had this kind of ability to see the cloud around every silver lining. And yeah. the, the scenario that troubles me a little bit is that the Democrats take the House. They do all these things that, you know, you're absolutely right that they should and like to do. 
It produces paralysis. Uh, for 18 months, Donald Trump is the only voice that has the whole stage while the Democrats squabble among themselves. Uh, and the economy slows down in that period. And then you get to you know, 2020 and Donald Trump says, well, you know, when I had it and we had the Republicans, we were doing fine. And now we have paralysis with the Democrats and the economy's in trouble. Got to keep me around and we got to get rid of these guys. And it actually helps him win. Uh, so I, you know, take the Eeyore analogy further. You're you're not just one who thinks that the glass is half uh, empty, but that it's cracked and uh, it's filled <laughs> with acid. Um, but your your points are very well taken. I do think um, if Democrats do win the House, um, and assuming that they do, that very likely Trump's strategy is not going to be let's see if we can find ways to work together or even to respond to all of the oversight, the subpoenas and the rest of it, but to deliberately provoke greater division and confrontation. Uh, we're we're going to have a fairly um, clear indicator just a couple of months uh, into the next year. We have these periodic confrontations, of course, over uh, spending bills and the threats to shut down the government. And uh, Republicans not wanting to have this happen. The fiscal year, of course, begins October 1, and a shutdown uh, at the beginning of this last month would not have been the best way to go into an election. So they punted for the year until February. And we know the signals coming from Trump and the White House and other places are that he is uh, really uh, waiting for a confrontation where he will demand full funding for his wall and will shut down the government if uh, Congress doesn't provide it. So um, I'm expecting that, and I'm expecting him to then blame the Democrats for everything. And you may be right. At the same time, um, if we do have a great deal of difficulty and uh, a slowing economy. And let's face it, um, you know, we're on a sugar high right now, uh, stimulated very much by the um, huge tax cuts, irresponsible ones, done at a time of full employment and economic growth, which are not uh, what um, economists most would tell you to do. It's a sugar high. Um, we don't know when it'll come down. Um, if I were Donald Trump, I'd still rather have a booming economy uh, to take it into 2020. This is all assuming he's still there. Um, but I think uh, voters would want a change at that point. And I don't think the change that they would want is to bring back uh, Republicans in the House, Senate and uh, White House. That hasn't worked out all that well for most people, even with a stronger economy. So um, I would fear more that the economy continues to do well, that he manages to stay in office. And let's keep uh, in mind the strong possibility that the Democrats not only don't handle the majority well, indeed, as you say, squabble amongst themselves, starting with what might be a very uh, debilitating fight uh, over the speakership um, with uh, Nancy Pelosi and whatever other pretenders emerge. But you can also imagine the Democrats going into 2020 with 20 candidates and the uh, 10 of them on a main stage in the debates, most of them unknown, uh, but that the one who manages to emerge from uh, the scrum is the one channeling anger 
which could well be the zeitgeist of Democrats. And Democrats could end up nominating somebody who uh, is not going to build any broad support and might, in fact, be a candidate uh, uh, no more palatable than Donald Trump uh, to a larger group of voters. So I can match your pessimism at times. Wow. That, no, you, <laughs> you're not only matching it, you're making me depressed. So let me try to change, let me, let me change the tone a little bit, um, because in the scenario that you describe, there are several sort of good news stories besides just the Democrats winning. Uh, yes. Several stories that I think are kind of interesting good news stories, one of which is the Republicans put all their chips on a tax cut that has had absolutely no traction. Um, and in fact, the president has effectively run away from it. And nobody's talking about it. Um, and since it was an irresponsible tax cut, as you point out, that's a positive bit of news. But even more positive to me is what you referenced earlier with regard to governors uh, and and state officials and uh, and frankly, I would extend it further to the crop of new Democrat uh, new Democrats who may win seats in the House, um, and that is that it looks like the Dems are, you know, changing their bench. Um, that there's a new group of potential leaders that are emerging, uh, and frankly, Democratic Party it looks to me a, a little bit tired. Uh, and the leaders look a little bit uh, old. And and this, you know, with, with a lot of governors, governors from states that are red or purple, governors from states that are at the heart of the U.S., uh, young, smart, vibrant, uh, that, that could be quite encouraging as a kind of a, a hitting of the refresh button for the Democratic Party. I agree with that. I do think that, you know, when I look at the uh, array of candidates out there, and Democrats, uh, the challenge of Trump, and this is one of the positive things that comes from it, uh, has brought out a lot of people who've never run for office before who are extraordinarily attractive and talented. And that includes, of course, a very substantial number of women, uh, but women who don't come from traditional places for uh politics or political uh, campaigns. And I'm thinking of people like uh, Amy McGrath, McGrath uh, running in Kentucky, uh, Kentucky's 6th uh, district, um, that is a Republican district, uh, somebody who uh, ended up as a Marine uh, F-18 co-pilot, fought uh, in uh, combat situations in Afghanistan and uh, uh, who's come back back uh, to get into public life and is compelling, would be a national figure once she got uh, to office if she wins. Abigail Spansberger in uh, Virginia's 7th District, uh, Dave Bratt being the incumbent who, a Tea Party guy who beat um, Eric Cantor uh, several years ago, um, a CIA undercover operative. We have just a lot of those. And then you look at some of the candidates for governor, including uh, two who have become 
um, uh, really major national figures already. Uh, Andrew Gullum uh, running for governor of Florida, the mayor of Tallahassee, uh, a, a really um, impressive African-American, uh, would be the first in Florida. And Stacey Abrams, uh, with a, uh, some political experience, running for governor in Georgia, an African-American woman, would be a first. Um, I look at uh, people who've been on the stage but not on the national stage, like Beto O'Rourke, uh, uh, skyrocketing the national importance. Still an uphill battle, of course, to win uh, a Senate seat in uh, Texas. But if Beto O'Rourke does, he immediately becomes an impressive national figure. Now, having said that, um, I look at the House <coughs> as it's constituted, and um, the the sets of qualities you need to be an effective speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi, when she was speaker, demonstrated those back in the first two years of the Obama administration. And I'm not sure I see a lot of people who might challenge her who are able to do that. And I'm not sure I see uh, Chuck Schumer's leadership in the Senate uh, being up to the task of trying to deal with Mitch McConnell and or Donald Trump. Uh, so, you know, there are still some issues out there, but a quite remarkable group of people who will be coming in and will change the face of the Democratic Party and of American politics. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, and I think that that's a, a more you know optimistic note to end on here. I do want to say one last thing in the, the last minute or so that we've got, and that is that uh, while obviously I know your work and have read your books and we've met a couple of times, I follow you a lot on Twitter, and I find mm -hmm. that you and I share um, a, what I think is a common malady today, which is it's really hard to come up with the right adjectives to describe these assholes. And, <laughs> and, and I watch sometimes that you, you know, you're like despicable, vile, vile, despicable and corrupt. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's become a challenge to comment on what's going on because there aren't enough negative adjectives in the English language. Oh, that's true. And I've sometimes fallen back on uh, old terms rarely used, like scoundrel, uh, <laughs> to define people. But I've also, you know, for me, and I think a little bit for you, too, um, uh, Twitter's become an important catharsis at one level. Um, uh, you know, this is, I think, a, a, such a deep challenge to our way of life, to the role of America in the world, uh, to the well-being of people in the country and in the world, um, that uh, it's not a time to yell at the wall or the television set uh, or sit back. And uh, this gives me a platform where I can uh, sort of vent. But also, uh, Twitter is powerful in the sense that um, you can do things that resonate and reach a lot of other people um, and highlight things that um, need to be highlighted uh, that otherwise would fall by the wayside. And some of it is, uh, you know, this is something E.J. Dion and Tom Mann and I did a, a book um, uh, fairly early in the Trump uh, presidency called One Nation After Trump. And one of the things we pointed out there about the campaign was that Trump fended off one scandal with another scandal and another and another. 
And we're finding that in governance. It's scandal after scandal. You know, we have we've had two cam, uh, uh, cabinet officers have to resign uh, under clouds, and now we have a third, uh, uh, Ryan Zinke, who just had uh, the acting inspector general in the uh, Interior Department after he tried to bounce her, but uh, still there, um, uh, doing a criminal referral potentially to the Justice Department. And it gets lost in the shuffle with all of the other stuff going on. Uh, the bandwidth that we have is limited. And this is one way in which we can try and get some of those issues to get the attention they need. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I would add, just throw in there that, you know, um, at the end of this administration, there'll be a little bit of a contest and an award, no doubt, for the cabinet officials broken the most laws. Uh, and a, and a contender. Stiff competition, really stiff competition. Really stiff, but <laughs> Zinke's in the running, but so is Wilbur Ross. And oh, I yeah. What you may see with Wilbur Ross is he may quit before we get into these investigations. Uh, well, you know, when you live in a world um, where uh, the uh, energy secretary, uh, a former governor of Texas, best known for going on the presidential debate stage and talking about eliminating three cabinet departments and not even remembering which ones, uh, that Rick Perry is uh, gets less attention for miscreants than uh, almost any other cabinet officer really tells you where we are. Well, it's true. He's redeemed by his performance on Dancing with the Stars, which I guess, yeah, is in, in America's heart. In any event, uh, I, I think you're right about Twitter, and I think the role you play there is great. And I encourage everybody who's out there in deep state land to listen uh, to follow um, Norm Ornstein uh, on Twitter and uh, follow what he writes and when he speaks, uh, because he's one of the real uh, thoughtful and insightful folks in Washington observing this now. And I hope we can have you back maybe after the election of course. about 2020. Um, yeah. which I no doubt will start very soon. But thank you very much, Norm. Sure. My pleasure, David. Great to talk to you. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.